This is Nutshell Politics, a show where we discuss what you need to know about current events, international relations, political conflict, and my favorite topic of discussion, terrorism. The mainstream media isn't always the best at reporting on international events. They often lack depth, context, and understanding, a problem unfortunately driven by ratings. But here, on Nutshell Politics, I seek to fill those gaps, and most importantly, to make sure you know what's actually going on out there. So let's dive in. Hey guys, welcome back to Nutshell Politics. My name is Justin Kinney and I will be your charming host today as we discuss a big event that is currently taking place for one of our longest standing allies, but also one of our frequent adversaries in in conflict. So we're going to be talking about Brexit. Now Brexit is a phrase or a a word, I I should say, that's considered a portmanteau. It's when you take two other words and smush them together. So it's a portmanteau of British and exit. And so it's the description of what's happening in the United Kingdom right now, England, uh, as the UK starts to withdraw from the European Union. And this is something that's scheduled to take place by the end of this month, at March 29th. And this is the period for when uh, negotiating the withdrawal agreement is officially scheduled to end. And so if no agreement takes place by then, you will will see a hard exit with no plan in place for how to go about that. Now, the reason we're going to talk about this this week is because there were a couple big votes last week on it. And as I said, next week will be the big deadline if they can't get anything put into place. So let's back up and talk a little bit first about the EU. And then we'll talk about why the UK wanted out, what might be taking place there, some of the struggles, and maybe what might be, what might happen going forward. So let's start with what the EU is. So the EU is a, so it stands for the European Union, and it is a union of, I believe, 28 member states right now across Europe uh, that all operate together politically, economically. They have open borders. Uh, they have an internal single market that all use the euro for their currency, or a lot. Of, I should say a lot of them do anyway. They use a kind of standardized system of laws that can apply across member states. And this all kind of gets at the basic idea that EU policies are in place to ensure the free movement of people, goods, services, and capital, or money. And so all kinds of legislation are passed in that effort. Uh, We also see things like passport control that has been abolished, so you can actually travel from one country to another within the EU without needing to reshow your passport. There are a couple exceptions to that, but um, mostly that's true. And then you also have, as I said, kind of a monetary union where you all, where they all use the euro. Uh, not every state does that. Again, there's a few exceptions, but by and large, that is also true. And so the idea here is they're trying to unite the European continent. It was thought for a long time that Europe was a very conflict-ridden continent. The borders that are there today are kind of the result of centuries and centuries of fighting. They have fought each other over, actually, really over millennia, ever since they've they've started these countries, you know, back long before they were even recognizable countries that we tend to think of today, and especially since they were kind of established as sovereign states with the Treaty of Westphalia in the 1600s. And so with this long, long history of conflict, Europe was put into a position where they 
wanted to come up with some way to try to end a lot of this fighting. And so with a handful of treaties going back to the 1950s, I believe, have all kind of been put into place to help form the European Union. Now, the original members of this were what are called the Inner Six. So we're talking Belgium, France, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, and West Germany. And so those six countries have been around pretty much since the beginning. Now, other countries, as I mentioned, have joined. Uh, three more joined in the 70s. That would be Denmark, Ireland, and the UK. So the UK, which is now currently trying to leave, has been around since, I believe, 73. You have countries Greece, Portugal, Spain, Austria, Finland, Sweden. Those all came about in the 80s and 90s. And then in the 2000s, in 2004, we had a whole host of them join. Hungary, Cyprus, the Czech Republic. Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Malta, Poland, Slovakia, and Slovenia. In 2007, we had Bulgaria and Romania join. And then the most recent one that joined, just joined in 2013, so about six years ago, or will be six years this summer, is Croatia. And so that's 28 member countries. Now, the EU, as of 2017, encompasses about 7 to 8% of the world's population. It has a GDP of about $19.6 trillion. So this is a pretty massive endeavor. Uh, they all have a fairly high uh, human development index. Uh, the EU actually won the Nobel Peace Prize as an, as an entity back in 2012, I believe. And they actually have their own, so shall we say, representative of sorts for things like the United Nations, the WTO, the G7, the G20. So the EU actually gets its own representative in addition to member countries getting the representative at some of these major international institutions. And because of that kind of level of global influence, we've actually seen the European Union being described by some as its own form of superpower alongside the likes of China, Russia, and the United States. Now, with all of that said, let's jump back to the 1970s when the UK joined this. Now, when the UK joined the EU, it was actually not called the EU. It was called the European Communities, or the EC. And they joined it in 1973. But even really since its beginning, opposition to the EU has been fairly prevalent within the UK. This is not like a brand new thing. In those early years, especially kind of through the 70s and the 80s, the, the group that mostly wanted to leave the EU was actually the political left. You had like the Labour Party in the 1980s. But as we got into the 80s with Margaret Thatcher in particular, we saw opposition and, and development of the EU into something much, much larger start to grow on the right as well, where you had a lot of concern that the EU was becoming a political union in its own right and taking away from the sovereignty of individual smaller states. Now, as we got further into the 90s, into today, mostly the opposition to further integration comes from the right. And you have uh, the Conservative Party over there in the UK, which kind of has led some of the charge on this. Now, we also have a new party in the UK called, the, called UKIP, the UK Independence Party. And they played a pretty big role in bringing about the referendum that led to the split from, from the European Union over there. Now, the referendum was actually took place in June of 2016. So by this point, they had been in the European Union for a little over 40 years. And when this referendum came about, they put it up for a popular vote. Uh, it's a referendum, basically, it's a vote in which pretty much everybody of voting age can take part. And the decision to leave the EU won the vote by a, a 
total of 51.9% to 48.1%, so roughly 52 to 48%. Uh, about 30 million people in the country voted, which is a little over 70% of, of the uh, total possible vote. But interestingly, the decision to leave was not, pretty, was, was not uniform across the country. So we had certain regions that were much more favorable towards staying. You had countries like, so the, the UK, we, I've never really talked about it on this podcast, but the UK is split up into multiple countries. A lot of people know this. You have England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland. So England voted to leave by a higher percentage. I think it was more like 53 to 47. Wales also voted along the similar lines. But Scotland and Northern Ireland both wanted to stay in the EU. So we saw in those regions, uh, Scotland actually in particular, voting to remain in the EU with with a score of roughly 62 to 38%. Now, a lot of the concerns that the UK had at this point in time were because... It has grown much larger than anyone really even thought it was going to. It really began after World War II, as I said, to foster like economic cooperation. There's a, a whole principle in political science that talks about this idea of democratic peace or capitalist peace theory, which is this idea that countries that trade with one another are more likely to avoid going to war. So in other words, the more you trade with another country, the less likely you are to fight them because fighting them would ultimately end up hurting you. So there's this democratization movement, capitalist movement among many in, actually across the world, especially across the West, that push this idea of economic cooperation. And you actually see this pretty heavily here in the United States as well. This idea of democratic peace or capitalist peace is what drives a lot of politicians across the aisle, Democrats and Republicans, to push for ideas of like spreading democracy. We saw, for instance, both Bill Clinton and George Bush in this country push for that idea of spreading democracy around the world to promote peace. That mostly gets at this idea that that we believe, or a lot of people believe, I should say, that the more you trade with other countries, the more democracies there are in the world, the more open markets, the less likely you are to go to war. However, the EU has grown well beyond what anybody expected. Uh, it's become kind of a single market. So allowing goods and people to move around pretty freely, almost as if the member states were one country in and of themselves. So it's kind of started to blur a lot of the lines of distinction between the countries. You have your own currency, which is used by, as I said, most of the countries, not all, I believe 19 or 20 of them use that. It has its own parliament system, its own set of rules uh, on a lot of different things, you know, the environment, transport, passports, even simple things down to like, how, how do you charge your mobile phone? It, they've tried to implement a lot of rules that can be universal across these countries. Now, as I've said, this caused a lot of concern among certain people. Nowadays, it's probably a little bit more on the right, but historically, it's also it's been on the right and the left, that the EU is detracting from state sovereignty. Basically, countries want to be able to govern themselves, and the ability of a country to govern itself without outside interference is something that's known as sovereignty. And when you are giving up sovereignty to some other entity, whether it's another state or institution like the UN, that can cause a lot of concern that you are losing your ability to go to govern yourself. And so you had this vote in 2016, June of 2016, that resulted in them leaving or choosing to leave, I should say. Now, when the UK voted to do this, it had to invoke what's called Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty, which is one of those treaties that, that dealt with the formation. 
and that essentially gave them a two-year window to agree to terms of the split, how they were going to do this. And so in 2017, early 2017, Theresa May triggered this process. So it meant the UK was scheduled to leave on March 29th of 2019. It gave them two years to, to settle this and to figure it out. Since they did that, they have been negotiating ever since. And as you can tell, we're kind of getting right up to the final deadline for this. Now, the reason this is taking so long is because the integration that they had was actually quite high. If, if, for instance, if they end up leaving the EU without some sort of deal in place, there would be no transition period and you would have all kinds of potential problems that would arise because of the way it had been integrated before from passport control to rights of residence, being able to live in one country but work in another, issues with food retailers that could cause shortages of certain food products, especially like fresh produce and those sorts of things. It could affect medications going across borders and just in case you know supplies from certain countries get interrupted. There could be massive implications on the both political front and the economic front. And it could ultimately end up changing the way that they trade with one another, with, with these other countries. Now, they would still continue to trade because if a country doesn't have free trade deals with another country, you know, tariffs and things like that, the WTO, which is the World Trade Organization, has rules in place for things like that. So the the UK would still end up trading with the EU, but it would change some a lot of the rules on trade and tariffs as they transitioned over from EU laws to World Trade Organization rules. And so this has caused a lot of disagreement about how to go about this, what these new plans should be for as they for leaving the institution. And we're kind of running right up on the deadline. We've got about like a week and a half, two weeks left. And stopping Brexit at this point would be very, very tricky. So it is, I should mention, it is actually possible that Brexit could be canceled in the next two weeks and the UK would not leave, making essentially the last two years a waste. But doing so would require a change in law in the UK that nobody really wants to do at this point. The European Court of Justice back in, I think it was December of 2018, did rule that the UK could cancel their, their, that Article 50 process and remain a member of the EU on the previously existing terms, but only if Parliament voted for it. And they wouldn't necessarily need the permission of, of the other 27 EU members. So there is a procedure in place or a mechanism for Brexit being canceled, but it would require a pretty massive change as well as a Parliament vote for that. So that's fairly unlikely to happen. Now, it is possible that they could delay this deadline. As I said, we're about a week and a half to two weeks out, and it is possible to delay the, this Article 50 by extending it. Now, the EU would have to do this itself. This is not something that the UK would do. You'd have to have the permission of the other 27 member states. But if its leaders thought that extending it could smooth out the process or potentially even keep the UK in through some other referendum, they could extend it up to a few months or so, give or take. So all of this leads to what's been happening in just the last few months. So Theresa May has been working on this deal, as I said, for the last two years. And in January, she officially put it to a vote. Now, she had wanted to put it to a vote uh, in December, but pulled it at the last minute because you know, it didn't look like she had the votes. Ultimately, she did put it to a vote in January. I think it was January 15th of this year. 
and suffered a massive, massive defeat. Uh, it's actually one of the largest defeats for a sitting government in all of UK parliamentary history. She lost by like something like 220, 230 votes. And this was immediately followed by a vote to remove Theresa May from power. Now, she did survive that. All of the conservative MPs, who are like their congressmen over there, who had voted against the deal, voted to keep her in power to try to get an even better deal from the EU. So what's happening now is that they went back to the drawing board and decided to try to go through and come up with some other sort of deal. And what happened last week, just on uh, March 12th, I believe it was, Theresa May came forward with a new deal, a new deal to be voted on. This deal was also rejected, although by a lesser margin than the first one, it was only about 150 votes, but it was rejected again. So this raises a lot of questions as to what's going to happen next, because with less than two weeks to go until the hard deadline, there's just not enough time left to put together a third deal to be voted on and convince people that it's the right deal to put forward. So that raises a question, what's going to happen next? And the second question of what are the implications of that, both for the EU, but also for the world as a whole, and actually even for the United States too. But we'll talk about that on the other side of this quick 60 second break. Uh, so please stick with me through the quick commercial and I'll be back on the other side to talk about those questions. All right, welcome back. Thanks so much for sticking with me through that short commercial break. Let's go ahead and dive right back into our topic this week of Brexit. So the reason this has been in the news uh, lately is because just last week, there was this vote on March the 12th. I mentioned this before the commercial break, and they ultimately rejected the deal that was put forward by Theresa May the second time she had put it up for a vote and kind of embarrassingly lost it again. Now, on Thursday of last week, so this would be the 14th, they, the British lawmakers, the parliament there, voted to postpone the departure from the EU. And they actually tried to take away control of Brexit from Theresa May. Now, they, the vote to postpone the departure from the EU succeeded. The vote to take away control from May failed. And this raises a lot of questions as to what comes next. But before we move that far, let's just take just a minute and talk about a couple of the issues that are kind of holding up this this deal and why they're why they keep rejecting this deal that May keeps putting forward. So there are I should say there's a lot of different reasons for this. As I mentioned, the it, the integration here is quite deep politically and economically, and so there's a lot of details that need to be worked out. But two of the biggest reasons that this is such a big deal and why it's been held up for so much are the the economics concerns with free movement in order for the right of people to move to Britain, vice versa, to work in one country, live in another, and then also the border between the UK and Ireland. And so I want to touch briefly on both of those for a second. So. Europe is the UK's most important and largest export market, its biggest source of foreign investment. And so the risk of losing a lot of business and therefore a lot of jobs is pretty high if Britain you know, leaves the EU, or I should say when they do. Uh, the most recent one I think that I saw that came out that threatened to leave was Airbus. Uh, Airbus employs you know thousands of people, supports thousands of jobs. And so if they leave, England, then that could be a pretty devastating blow to the, the economy of the UK. Now, that sounds like a pretty bad thing. So why are some people still supporting this? So the other side of this argument is that there's a lot of working class people who have been drastically hurt 
by this free movement of businesses and people being able to go in and out because they see the free movement as a massive threat to their jobs. And so there's a lot of working class Britons who feel like they're being pushed out of their own of, of jobs in their country because of this. And so there's a lot of people who see leaving the EU economically as a benefit for working class people. But as I said, it might also end up impacting overall economy if businesses do choose to leave. Now, whether or not they choose to leave is still probably up in the air. Obviously, there's a lot of things that we don't know, depending on how these new trade deals are worked out. But the other big hang-up, and probably the largest, or I should say, most influential snag in the process, happens along the border, the only land border that the UK has with any other country in the EU, and that is the line between Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK, and Ireland, which is not. Ireland is its own separate member state of the EU. Northern Ireland is one of the states of the UK. Now, at the moment, because of the free and open borders, that line between Ireland and Northern Ireland is essentially invisible. You can kind of come and go as you please, cross that border very easily. But if that free movement ends, that land border becomes a much more hard and fast border where you'll have to have checkpoints to go through it and will slow things down and will be seen by a lot of Irish people, like the ethnic Irish, as dividing their people. Now, both sides of this, including Theresa May, who's been you know, trying to negotiate a Brexit, want to try to keep those checkpoints from going up. And so this has been a big hang-up of the deal is to try to figure out how they can remove themselves politically from the EU but still maintain that open border relationship with their only land border of Ireland. So those are two of the big issues that are kind of impacting this deal and part of the reason that they're having such a big problem. As I mentioned, there's a lot of others. This is a very complicated, complex issue that will take a lot of wheeling and dealing behind the scenes. And as I said, we're only about a week and a half to two weeks to go. There's probably not enough time for that. Theresa May is thought to be pushing for one more deal, possibly another vote, either later this week or early next week. I personally find that to be kind of unlikely to go through, but even if it does, it's probably likely to fail at this point, as Parliament has essentially requested an extension. And so this raises the question, what comes next? So whether or not Theresa May's deal is approved for th in this third vote, hypothetically, she will almost certainly have to ask for a delay from the rest of the European Union. Now, if her deal is accepted, they'll probably ask for a short delay to implement it. If it is rejected, as is probably most likely, May will have to ask for a much longer delay. But this means for the time being, the country is in a state of limbo of sorts. And things are about to change quite considerably, quite drastically in the next week and a half as we get closer and closer to that March 29th deadline. Now, as I said, Theresa May is almost certain to ask for some sort of extension and how much time she requests will depend a lot on whether or not she gets a third deal in place. I seriously doubt it's going to happen. Even if she gets a vote, it's unlikely to pass. But once she asks for an extension, it moves to the EU. All 27 remaining EU countries, or I should say member states, have to agree. It has to be unanimous. And there are a lot of very real, genuine divisions across the European continent on this. But despite all of that, the EU is expected to approve an extension from Theresa May. And the reason for that is, is mostly that other than a handful of activists, 
a hard exit for the UK is not really seen in anyone's best interest. It's not in the UK's best interest. It's not in the EU's best interest. You'll see the UK kind of fall out of what's essentially become the world's second largest economy in the world. But there is a concern here that if the EU approves an extension, that sets a precedent that the UK will ask for more extensions down the road and theoretically that other countries who choose to leave at some potential date in the future will also be able to drag this on longer and longer. So there are some concerns about approving that extension, but as that deadline gets closer and closer, I don't really see any reason why the EU would not grant at least some sort of extension here. As I said, it's not really in anybody's best interest to see the UK get this hard crash as they you know, bust through the wall out of the EU. It's not gonna. It's not really going to help anybody on any front here. Now, if they do grant that longer extension process, again, I think this is likely. Uh, but if they do, then we're going to have a lot more talks about how to go about finding a solution for this. And there's quite likely to be certain conditions that the EU puts into place. The EU might say something like, "We'll only grant this extension." If you meet certain criteria, hold, hold a second Brexit vote, hold some sort of general election about this, push for a, a softer exit with more deals in place, could be anything. Uh, so we're not really sure what would go down for that. It's even possible you might have a second referendum where, where people of Great Britain re-vote on this issue. But all of this means that that March 29th deadline that's coming up is going to be a hugely meaningful date. Uh, it's very unpredictable. We're not, really not sure what's going to take place. The expectation at this point is that there will be some sort of extension negotiated before that, at which point that date will be pushed off. But we really only have about a week and a half left until something needs to be done. Now, once that extension is granted, this thing could drag on for months to potentially even years. As It's, just, it's already taken two years and it's quite likely to take more to kind of unwind and back out of what's essentially been 40 years, 40 plus years of economic integration, and then in put into place some sort of new free trade deal, which under normal circumstances could take a couple of years anyway. And that whole process makes things very, very difficult. But as we kind of move to close out the episode, I wanted to just touch a little bit on some of the, the big issues here. Brexit in and of itself is a big deal on the political stage. As the, the United States has deals with the EU, they would now have to renegotiate those with the UK individually. Same thing with Canada, with other countries around the world. So it's not just about free trade with the EU, but it could potentially impact free trade deals with other countries as well, because they have primarily been operating under EU guidelines. And if they want those to stay in place, they'll have to sign new deals with all these other individual countries or find some other sort of group deal. But at, at the core of Brexit, there are a lot of questions surrounding the idea of economic globalization. Should the world be economically interconnected like this? Ideas of national identity. There's been a lot of concern, not just in the UK either, but in other countries, Sweden, Italy, Germany, France, that have raised concerns that integrating into communities like this are blurring the distinctions between all of these people groups. In other words, it means less now to say I am French or I am German or I am English or British or Swedish or Italian or, or whatever because the distinction between being French and German has blurred as we've seen the, the, even the, the literal borders between the countries completely open up. And so there's some thought 
among some people that national identity is starting to fade in Europe. And that's raised a lot of concerns because as people start to identify more and more as a European citizen, a citizen of Europe, more than they identify, say, as a citizen of the UK or a citizen of France or Italy or whatever, it's quite possible that a lot of the culture of each individual country is starting to fade. And a lot of people aren't particularly happy about this. So there's a lot of questions about national identity surrounding this. And again, it's not just the UK that's having these questions. There are other countries as well that have raised issues about this. There's also questions of immigration. Does opening borders and permitting essentially free immigration harm the working class people of individual countries? And so a lot of these countries have begun to go through a bit of an identity crisis. And Britain itself has always kind of been one of the outsiders of the EU, even as a member. They're one of those, you know, handful of countries that has kept their own currency. They use the pound and not the euro. Now, they do accept the euro, but they use the pound for themselves. They've tried to maintain that identity as a separate country. And to an extent, that's been more successful there than it has been in other countries because they're an island. They're actually physically distinct from the rest of Europe. But that question of who the UK is, where their place is in the world, is not a question that is unfamiliar to a lot of these other countries as well. And so as we kind of watch Great Britain work out their role in all of this, their role in the world, their role as a, as a power, superpower, their role as a member of Europe, whether they're a hard and fast member of the EU or if they're you know, something separate and distinct but still has a lot of relationships with them, that is something that a lot of other countries are, I guarantee you, keeping a very close watch on going forward because they have a lot of these similar movements in their countries as well. There are several other countries that have had fairly significant movements within smaller, say, political parties or organizations that have been pushing for their own country to leave the EU as well. And so the way that Great Britain handles this going forward could set precedent for potentially other countries as well, which is also part of the reason the EU is so keen to make this very difficult for the UK too. They don't want other countries seeing that this is an easy process and deciding to back out on their own, especially some of these more powerful, more wealthy countries like Great Britain, because if they start to lose their wealthy countries, they don't have as much money to distribute to some of the poorer countries. One of Great Britain's biggest concerns is that they've essentially been helping finance and fund countries like Greece, which have been really struggling economically. So Great Britain feels like it's putting in way more than it's getting out at this point. And so if they leave successfully, and then some of these other more wealthy countries in the EU start to leave as well, that's going to leave a lot of poor states, poor, I should say, poorer states, or states that are struggling economically without the welfare safety nets of the wealthy states in the organization. And so the countries that feel like they are putting in more than they're getting out are watching Great Britain's exit with a lot of interest, I think, because they may have similar movements, similar concerns, similar situations in the years to come. In the next 10 to 20 years, I think it's quite likely that Great Britain will not be the only country that has gone through this process. And so the UK has a lot of incentive here to make this very difficult to try to disincentivize other countries from, from trying this as well. Uh, but with that, we're going to go ahead and close out the episode. Remember, as we go through the next week and a half, keep a very close eye on what's happening here because it will end up affecting the way that the US has deals as well. It may impact how we look at a lot of these international institutions. It may impact how we start to view globalization. 
and the decisions that come out of the next week and a half, whether they decide to go through with the hard exit with no deals in place, or they get some sort of extension from the EU, or probably most unlikely, they end up passing Theresa May's deal in the next week or so, or whatever third effort at this. There's going to be a lot of implications on this going forward. So just keep a very close eye on this as we get closer and closer to that March 29th hard deadline. It's now been almost, let's say, two and a half years now since the first vote, and we're really coming right up to that deadline very, very shortly. Uh, But with that, we're going to go ahead and close things out. Remember to tune in next week. We're going to do a special historical episode in honor of Women's History Month, which is the month of March here in the United States, but also coincides with several other similar celebrations in other countries. And so to celebrate women, we're going to talk about historical matriarchies or societies that were run by women or are structured somehow around the female line or female lineage. And so I think that should be a really interesting episode. We're going to talk about multiple different people groups over a lot of different points in history. And so please remember to tune back in for that. In the meantime, if you'd like to connect with me, you can find me on Twitter at Justin R underscore Kinney. Find me there, hit that follow button. I'd be happy to continue this conversation or any others with you there. If you only have Facebook and don't want to do the Twitter thing or want to do both, you can find me on Facebook under J. Robert Kinney. It's the name I write fiction novels under. I am an author that has published two novels. On You can find them both on Amazon. One's called Precipice and one is called Splintered State, both under the name J. Robert Kinney. So you can find my page on Facebook. Hit that subscribe button as well to follow me there. If you are interested in supporting me, supporting this podcast, or advertising on the podcast in any way, shape, or form, please let me know. I'd be happy to talk with you more about that possibility. And if you have any other ideas for possible future episodes, let me know. The one that we're going to be doing next week was a suggestion from a listener. And so I am very happy to incorporate those into the rotation as we move forward. So please let me know if you have any ideas. But with that, we're going to go ahead and close things out for this week. This is Nutshell Politics. My name is Justin Kinney, and I am out in three, two, one. 